literature sound like? What stories will we hear if we listen to the archive? Welcome to the Spoken Web Podcast, stories about how literature sounds. My name is Hannah McGregor, and each month I'll be bringing you different stories of Canadian literary history and our contemporary responses to it, created by scholars, poets, students, and artists from across Canada. Creating an archive of literary lives and events can be a daunting task. Think about an author you admire. If you want to preserve their legacy in a box of materials, how would you do it? What would you save? How would these materials communicate the realities of the present to those living decades in the future? And how do sound recordings fit into or even enhance an archive? Archival collections are fragments of memory a curated set of materials that has been gathered and preserved to encapsulate a moment, community, or person. Archives preserved at universities, museums, and other places contain all kinds of materials, from mundane lists and notes to photographs to sound recordings, our specialty here at Spoken Web. It might feel counterintuitive to think about the need for archiving today when so much of our lives are ceaselessly recorded, There are many digital outlets that people can use to collect and share moments from our lives and our literary present. But this abundance of material is also a call for curation and intentionality around what to protect and pass on. We can't save everything, and we probably don't want to. So what should we choose to save? Today, our episode producer, Julia Pollock O'Neill, leads us into one archival project, the Archive of Canadian Poet Lisa Robertson. Julia is caring for and studying part of Robertson's archive as part of her postdoctoral work on the complexity of archiving the lives and works of interdisciplinary artists. In this episode, Julia shares a recording of Robertson from the archive and plays clips of Robertson discussing the challenges of forming her own archive. Julia uses these clips to reflect on creative and feminist approaches to archiving and on her personal connection to Robertson's life and work. This episode is a fascinating and moving glimpse into the power of sonic archival material and the weight of memory, mortality, and trust in the archival process. Here is Julia Pollock O'Neill with Season 3, Episode 2 of the Spoken Web Podcast. Lisa Robertson and the Feminist Archive. Hello, thanks for listening. My name is Julia Pollock O'Neill, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher theorizing interdisciplinary artists' archives according to feminist and digital epistemologies. This podcast episode, on which I've been working for quite some time, has recently been reimagined according to my private emotional responses to two long and surprisingly intimate conversations I recorded with Canadian poet Lisa Robertson, a feminist writer who was a member of the Kootenai School of Writing in Vancouver in the 1990s and early 2000s. I'm considering Robertson's archive as part of my postdoctoral project, My conversations with Robertson and meditations on the connections between her body of work, biography, 
and her archive form the bridge between my recently completed dissertation work on Vancouver's critical conceptualism in art and writing and my work re-examining and analyzing the complexity of the archival collections of interdisciplinary artists. Robertson's work has figured into both projects in a formal way, but now I wish to consider how her archives and our collective thinking about her archives is influencing my research and the ways I approach the topic of archives and intimacy in my work and my life more broadly. Listening to our conversation months later invokes all kinds of feelings related to the relationship between archives' memory, affect, and mortality. Archives have an emotional weight, a kind of affective tenor, that is challenging to describe accurately with language. Objects begin to stand in for complex lives and relationships. In this episode, I'm going to introduce you to Robertson's poetry and my research. First, I will share a recording of Robertson reading in 1994. Then, I'll share clips from an interview I conducted with Robertson earlier this year, on Friday, April 16th, 2021, over Zoom, with Robertson at home in France and me at my desk in downtown Toronto, months before Robertson's 60th birthday in July, and just before the announcement of the shortlist for the 2021 Governor General's Award in Fiction, for which her first novel, The Baudelaire Fractal, would be nominated. Throughout this episode, I will be putting these recordings into the context of my thinking and research on her work. I consider the significance of Robertson's intimate archival collections and the reflections she shared with me in light of a creative, conceptualist interest in the archive. I also propose these as aesthetic strategies related to histories of feminist material analysis that reconsider archival practices according to feminist ethical and affective methods, including feminist and affective approaches to audio recordings and the material and immaterial histories they impart, as Deanna Fong and Karis Shearer argue in their 2018 essay, Gender, Affective Labor, and Community Building Through Literary Audio Artifacts. I want to start this episode by listening together to this 20-minute recording of Eclog 8 at the January 8, 1994 launch of Robertson's book, Execlog, which exemplifies important characteristics of her writing and her work with the Kootenai School of Writing. In this recording from the Penn Sound Archive, you can hear the sounds of community participation so central to the ethos of the Kootenai School. Of course, we might primarily focus on the poet's own powerful voice, but I'm also drawn to the other voices we hear. The voices of other members acting as the Roaring Boys, an amateurish chorus, and the contributions of poet, artist, and organizer Nancy Shaw. But in this recording, in light of my interviews with Robertson, I'm most drawn to what we overhear in the background. The voices of audience members laughing and reacting in a way that suggests a deep, warm familiarity with the readers. The sounds of community. Part of an archive of community sounds. After we listen, I'll talk about how this connects with my research, and I'll share excerpts from my interviews with Robertson. Eclog 8, Romance. The Roaring Boys fan back. <laughs> the March trees torch the profligate sky because I say so. 
A tiny flopping boy with sullen fits drifts like a sheet of golden lust. In this empire of no tents, he bullies the dust. He lends the black street a gleaming arch. He flaunts his hidden rope burn like defeat. So what about his consummate Latinity? He has been moving in the pale night with the urgent authority of a meaning. The flicked fringe of his anger flatters mangled angels, and he weeps like a twin in the heat. The green wood never wanted him, nor the puckered gully he calls thought. A seabird rises like an angel in the night and shrieks its brackish laughter at his dream. The swains of justice pinch out the lights. A pronounced snout is gentle torture. Dressed in the dust of the jejun northern sky, he scissor to that pilgrim's grief. His marble whippets snap at piety, their pearly lust encrypted as confession. Under the empire's arches, swooning flower chasers confuse scripted infamy with paradise. They blindly submit to the loutish bonus of roaring boys' dreams as if the greenwood were the room of philosophes, as if their yearning arms were half tree. They had been moving all this time towards a rose of dust in the street, calling it golden, calling it the sodden issue of their belief. They clasp their girlish secrets like tiny glowing wreaths. In the tender platinum sky, a pronoun gallops, a pronoun shifts, a a pronoun shifts, hey Venus, kick in paradise, revolve outside march trees of piety. Gently the golden whippet snouts of gorgeousness lust in the tragic streets, touch supine forms of girlish hooligans. A bud will clasp its profligate secret rather than submit to gold stiff piety. And the pale jejun weak unfolds through the lattice of confusion. Who is not a pilgrim, carrying grief like an image through the northern sky? Already dressed as a boy, his dream of justice fucked. He had been moving through this adult and gentle world of gentle laughter. Softly, he flicks out his wings on the marble steps. The quiet of philosophes peaks in their rooms. Hey, Nancy! What's that color falling in the heat like a twin, like a tiny flapping soft scissor, a mistake? The fringe of his wings licks the dust like pearly fingers. Hey, Venus, get dressed in a better Latinity. Wear that salted harness beyond the need for abnegation. He quotes a crumbling dream and dares not say so. These boys are vicious as a burnt lip tongued. <laughs> the sleek swing of a silk fringe rewrites their project as a failure. One begins to sing. It is an anthem sprung with a quality of flung bits, withdrawn or chastened as rustling tongues influence scandal reigned with the amusing cruelty of Cupid birched, caressed by an accent as rubbed fur murmurs to the sneaking night, sulking as a flicked skirt, cradled in the precise euphoria of a method held in reserve, 
dirty per se. Rear a volume face and wave to the enormous night, since love's pure need lures such at credit. Through hunger's creamy trap will suss a petty sight, pass floral delight and flick at feeble kisses. Thus a sip from that vase quiet tremor, kindle a cold brat or crop that tricky verb. We'll either sap or wet Nancy's sultry transit. Rumors yet sufficient ardor to us. You suss her nervy spite. Newest fire gets her nectar's cunning gist needing swelling. This time the filmy cave will quote Cupid's vulgar luck to taste her lurid lips. We flaunt that silly statement. <laughs> That pathetic lay is all that's left of freedom in the cloistered night. Like a lock of Helen in the dangerous summer, having bloomed from the silvered style of an anxious wrist whose blunt syntax lacquers opacity with greed, yet crushing nothing more than the dampness that moves across the nylon'd air with rancid gusts in an age of tawdry indolence that breeds such smeared doubles for a calling, for a bruised structure, for a duped sincerity that flaunts escape. The next pretty boy emerges like a wraith from his crisis to find the concept does not need him. A slick whisper weaves across the commodities. Are you looking for fragrance? There is no sea and no forest and no boats passing. It's eight o'clock. The glass world curves into history, leaving a bare pronoun to bask on the roof of a promise. Read them, Audacity's slim wrists cuffed in elegance, wandering fingers clipped to the pulsing sky by those banal enchantments of antiquity and authority and consent. Read them as mere excitation, puling products of neglect. Nancy straps the audible sulk of a method to her hips and presses bitter lips against an image. Let's go down to the water's edge. Who fished the ineffable from the slick tissue of an absence, dripping its regret? She spends the loose coins from a lisped purse on an imported grammar that opens, that goes on sheer, a girl-boyed mirror, a compact. Nancy pins them to the glass. Roaring boy number one is skinny and pure as the bitter white heel of a petal. Spent lupins could describe his sense of his mind as a great dusty, silky mass. Yet a feeling of being followed had taken his will away. In an age of repudiation, he would exude sullen indolence and reveal his lace. He could be said to profoundly resent his inability to control his desire for an impenitent extrovert. When he closes his eyes, he asks, shall I be sold up? Am I to become a beggar? Shall I take to flight? He is skinny and pure as a calling. Roaring boy number two, boy with the volute heart of a girl names the faithless toss of an abandoned guess exactitude. He gives his thought with the sinuous rigor of a cut silk garment, 
lives silky lives looking at the sky waiting for the specificity of a pleasure whose deferral is underwritten by a constriction of memory the violent stammering of a repressed structure the planes of his face point to the exquisitely even surface of a late antique life he has begun by setting aside holy dread deferral is his darling roaring boy number three rather than submitting to the trial of action wants deeply to possess an opinion then having to possess to distribute it with maximum efficiency since the spectacle of luxury pleases him in others he embarks on a gradual to the point of imperceptibility inflation of his own verbal style and a concurrent almost compensatory deflation of his person he is both febrile and decorous decorous <laughs> a foolish hooligan of sardonic emphasis Eclogue 9, History. Knowing memory only bruises the past, Lady M scans the face of a feigned document whose ardent stammer she has already echoed, then languidly rejected. We cannot think tranquility a throne, yet time exceeds its barely tolerable pleasure. It is a crumb in our syntax. We need not inure ourselves to peace and luxury, but our privilege lies in understanding how the senses detect what is not servitude. Who then would write the biography of their desires? We ourselves will claim the requisite authority. They wished for lips of red thread like so many spies. They received through the veil of expression a heart moved only by etiquette. They wished to experience thought as we would be compelled to remember it. It became a languid impossibility. Their heart was lodged in an inaudible sentence. They wore nervousness on their spine and wrists. Their small, soft, edgy world was an intoxicant. The superb crumbling of the afternoon, so secret and so intense, identified itself as history. The ground shelved gently to the waterside, flowing from the flushed pulse of vul vulnerability under full, soft, hot light it was a challenged mesh from which our presence had been washed. If we were to imagine that contradiction as a landscape overwritten with vast, exhausted melancholy, quenched in mauvish, tasseled wind, we would only perpetrate the vain imposition of a hoax. Yet the sea's novice rhythm seems to wreak a freeze. The roaring boys drift aimlessly, believing their thoughts imperious. <laughs> A background of shimmering woods fetters our wary gaze. The black brow of a rock parches the trees. Sister of a lynx girt with quiver steps cunningly and cheats the light. Recall the echoing crags. A shore's lip keeps happiness for itself. The wood's breast is pierced with sight. Why, we, why may we not clasp the revolving night? The dusky grove bleeds virtue. For we saw two maids clashing with men whom the black storm had scattered. We saw one bare knee break the ghastly dark. 
We saw a strong hand raise the bow to slash the weird decrepitude time had wrought. Undone by our vision, we began to move tirelessly among the wending, dwindling paths. Though they appeared with grace, then faded into cruelty without apparent motivation. Slowly we came to understand how the forest was, was fraught or thatched with use. Capital had tagged our lurid route. We asked ourselves, will this delicate world of deliquescent charms compel a future? Then answered, the ground breeds sentiment, but what else is there to walk on? Sullenly we raised our glance. The coy foliage swung open to reveal this mossed inscription. Let go, shirk off the moderate little grace of vain Cupid, and grease the silver and lascivious age. His livid qualms dope our cool arrival. Rich poems sag like great nuns, art cheats time's martyrs. From the lip of slavish shade the guilty land reclines, swollen in a thousand livid tints. All around us everything's humming. In the low valley our futures writ on winking leaves, texture brushes drenched texture in a glamorous frisson of wit. The cushioning ground urges us to remeasure our impatience. May we muster sufficient elegance to court this pang's mobility? Sunk in moss, we dream of the lustrous pitch of a truculent tissue. It means we are traitors, for we do not accept the idea of the present. We dream we are tre treading the sloping orthodox street, etched with the scammed pride of hunger. It means memory has been defaced and placated by the effects of poverty. We dream that their desires have become transparent to us so that we may suavely recite. What does Lady M want? To bask in unfathomably strange beauties. Political beauty, liberty's beauty, undeniably gorgeous beauty of a girl's mind, a wrist's quivering beauty, beauty of the skin of boys' backs, beauty of burnished hoaxes, Deep in a clamoring taxicab, appalled beauty of a scholar's nervous heart, cleft beauty. Invaded by splendid lucidity, we dream the night is far spent, inexorable, thick lacquered, private. It means we have mistaken an invitation for permission. Yet still we feign this new erudition, inappropriate and demeaning. With a movement of tearing, we wake and cry out, We are not our own then find this frayed scrap pinned to our sleeve. A false, lopsided interpolations follow a wrinkled blind eye hoops. The crooning leaves shut around a mercurial ankle. The stir and toss of the stroking breeze begs belief. Through the screen of grief, we glimpse an ear's profane frill, luminous and insulting. These two have transformed us into what we are, green laurels that lose no leaf. What we call thought is cleft, and afternoon's olden freeze cracked and lacking only verisimilitude. We wish to seize the real as a tissue, leave the milieu of the curious, and enter that radiantly tortured grove. Yet we are history's minions. So again we draw on the opulent glove of sleep. We dream we have the will to think with the points of tiny scissors, 
It means luxury teaches us to dream of luxury. We dream of a barren, unbroken hunger blazing up in wild proportions, that we taxi through a, white, a wet night on thrumming streets, that a city's sumptuous edifice wanes like so many abandoned ghosts, that the shock of recognition twists like a blurred selvage, like a roped horizon, like a girl waiting in a car. We see the cradling flowers as taunting apostrophes, through thick glass, the granular light slants among fronds. The shining mud sucks at thought. The leaves reek of lust. Girls whose memories cause the clamoring sea in all names of ease quit tossing us such shoddy dreams. We dream we are dilations of banality. It means we are the willing captives of their metaphor. And I'll just finish by reading the epilogue. I'm afraid I'll be misunderstood. Asleep and sleeping in the clear, magnificent, misunderstood morning like a dahlia, or some other flower with the strong odor of clothing. I am reminded of my conceit by a row of pale scars on the ceiling, whose shy origin I shouldn't identify. Speech bites into my walls. Maybe for that, I will never forget the bus. In my dream of an intersection, we eat and hear as we relax. We felt this as the cabinet swung open. We felt a strong burst of vitality. Thank you. Execlog was not Robertson's first collection, but it is among her earliest published books and signals a formative moment, both for her and for the Kootenai School of Writing. The recording we just listened to captures aspects of her writing practice as it developed as a member of the Kootenai School of Writing in Vancouver, the sense of the formation of a feminist subject, and the development of a feminist ethics of care and leadership within the membership and community, which seems to come out in the ways Robertson includes community participation in her reading. When approaching the corpus of Robertson's writing in relation to her archive, including these sound recordings, it might be useful to observe that although her writing career began in and was situated in Vancouver when she was in her early 30s, the writing she completed during her moves around North America and relocation to France still bear a solid connection to the physical and emotional site of these beginnings. Importantly, while Robertson's environment and community in Vancouver influenced her engagement with and conception of the archive, her practice also demonstrates and maintains a personal engagement with feminist conceptualist thought. Her poetic and artistic networks in the city framed archival practice as a form of creative and political institutional intervention, as well as a method for feminist self-realization. And reflection. More pragmatically, the connections between cities and selves are maintained by her generative engagement with her own archive, both as an idea premised in affective self-reflection and as a studious method for a form of intuitive, meditative writing. In many ways, Robertson takes an ongoing, reflexive, relational approach to the institutional concept of the archive in her own fonds. 
She does so by means of the maintenance of different archives for different purposes, an official archive in special collections and rare books at Simon Fraser University, and two personal, unofficial, or what literary scholar Linda Mora has named unarrested archives. Robertson's divided fonts demonstrate how her poetics actively engage with the theoretical, ideological, feminist legacies of the KSW and its institutional contexts, while also maintaining a certain emotional engagement not immediately present in the content of her formal writings as they're published. Robertson's methods enact another manifestation of her relational approach to the archive in the ways she implicates her archive in her work itself. She does so by incorporating regular rereadings of her personal archival collection, kept with her in her home in France. Doubles of some of these materials are held in her official fonds at SFU, while other more recent items she actively retains, mostly journals, as future contributions that are currently too important to her ongoing work to send away. Yet another small collection is currently under my care, that which I have named her maternal archive, which she shared with me after our first interview in 2017 to help me with my early dissertation work. With her consent, I published an article in 2018 titled Lisa Robertson's Archive, the Feminist Archive, Singular and Collective, in the academic journal English Studies in Canada. These archives, that which is housed at SFU, her own, and that which was accumulated by her mother, Lynette Mullen, and then passed along temporarily to me, demonstrate how archives, particularly when imagined holistically and beyond the conventional structures of the institution, are anything but static, and are inherently distributed and dynamic, expanding and contracting across space and time. It is a slightly weird thing when one thread of your life becomes an institutional topic, Robertson said during our conversation in April, reflecting on how her lived and embodied experience differs from published narratives. The recent interview was noticeably more intimate than the first, probably because so much has happened since 2017, and possibly because we communicate from twin spaces of isolation during a global pandemic that unites everyone in indescribable melancholy. It is also possibly because I unwittingly have pulled Robertson into an exercise of thinking through her life by means of archival materials in different ways. When she read my article before submission, she commented on how important her mother's collection of objects now seemed, admitting that she had felt uncomfortable passing along such an unwieldy, unremarkable accumulation, which she may have referred to lightheartedly as junk. It is a global pandemic. For the first time, I realize in a material way that archives, the archive, is a concept entangled with notions of death and dying and, intrinsic to these extremes, survival and trauma. This is an essential material component of the archive. Birth, marriage, and death records, or vital statistics, form the basis of national public archival collections. The immaterial memorial aspects of archives have been theorized in several different ways. Feminist theorist Anne Svetkovich writes about the idea of an archive of feelings as an exploration of cultural texts as repositories of feelings and emotions, 
which are encoded not only in the content of the texts themselves, but in the practices that surround their production and reception. The archive, imagined broadly, brings to the fore not only recorded events, but also the lived experience, the rolling background, of the lives that contain them. Critical of conventional archives, scholar Diana Taylor, in her book The Archive and the Repertoire from 2003, explains that in arguing for the repertoire as an expansion beyond the archive, she tried to put limit events into conversation with the daily, non-eventful enactments of embodied practice in her study, foregrounding the importance of context within memory structures. The feelings and emotions invoked by an archive, by one's own archive, can be hard to isolate and express much like an event might be challenging to extract from its lived contexts. In scholar Julietta Singh's No Archive Will Restore You, her 2018 book of creative nonfiction, the narrator's desire to archive what she describes as sensing what movement philosopher Aaron Manning calls the anarchive, that strange and stunning something that catches us in our own becoming. The narrator goes on to explain the ineffable quality of this realization. This is the future archive, the archive of alterity. And like yours and mine, this is a body that has gone up in flame, a body that is in excess, that is another world and also this one. For Taylor, the body is incompatible with the archive, and for Singh, it is inseparable from it. For Robertson, the tensions between text and embodied experience are embedded in her archive. In our conversation, we meander between themes in a way that draws out these relations. Robertson and I talk about the late Nancy Shaw, one of the original members of the collective in Vancouver, who we heard in the previous recording. And Robertson begins to reflect on how so many of her formative relationships are contained in her archival collections although they likely remain inaccessible, relegated to footnotes or snapshots. In so doing, she meditates on the limits of narrative to capture lived reality, and how key figures in her memory are omitted from many representations of her life. She observes how this is a fact of habit, of how we receive and reiterate narratives. Histories that are intertwined are separated, and textures are smoothed over, she explains, noting how patriarchal structures are internalized. Feminist, queer, and Marxist working-class circulations through KSW were extremely complex from the get-go, she says, and encourages me, again, to look more closely at Shaw in my research. She was fucking brilliant, and she stood her own at the bar, she emphasizes. We talk about an envelope of photos from parties she recently sent to SFU, and how objects get imbued with new relational significance over time. Listen to Robertson describe her changing relationship to ephemera and her archive in our conversation last April. The first time I sent stuff to the archive, which was just as I was leaving Canada in 2003, I sent a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, and then since then, I've gradually been sending more photographs and things like that. 
which just seems sort of really intimate and personal previously, but now it's like, well, actually those people are dead, you know, changes the, changes your sense of custodianship. <laughs> they're not going to be embarrassed to be showing, looking a little bit goofy when they're drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean, though, like our relationship to these records changes. And I think um, this this sort of because you've described it a bit as a an, as a change in evolution or a shift even in, in your mm -hmm. thinking about these, um, the importance of these objects or the, the ways that yeah. the personal might be recorded. Um, yeah, I, I, I wonder. Uh, yeah, sorry, finish your question. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I, I wonder. Um, I I wonder what it is. Is it the sort of the glimpse of mortality that makes you feel a bit differently about it? There might be other things too. Well, it's quite literally seeing your friends die. You know, have you had any friends die yet? I've had, you know, uh, not really. No. Yeah. I've had people, a few, a few people, but it's so random still. Like yeah. It's not really. Does yeah. It well, it's, it's like, that's good. Um, I mean, I'm not super old, but, you know, I'm definitely not young anymore either. I turned 60 this year. So, you know, I mean, I guess that's still middle-aged. I'm going to choose to yeah. sort of consider it to be middle-aged, but, yes. you know, we're, we're right. <laughs> it's in a different, uh, yeah, you're in a different point in terms of your life trajectory. So it's, of course, it's more normal to have more friends who have died. Um, it's just the nature of things. Um, so yeah, the change just has to do with one's own aging and that changes your, that changes the kind of value you assign to, um, documents. Um, and it doesn't only have to do with that sort of intimacy of one's own relationship to mortality and witnessing one's friend's actual mortality. Um, but as I've been indicating, becoming familiar with habits of representation in the official accounts and seeing, oh yeah, the same kind of things are being reiterated um you know the same the desire to separate out feminism you know queer discourse from a you know straight white working class revisiting the archive can be integral to robertson's writing practice she is currently revisiting and writing a companion piece for her 2010 book, Ars Boat, a book that evolved from her 2004 chapbook, Rousseau's Boat, and which will eventually be republished as a new edition by Coach House Press in Toronto. We discuss how she has been using her archives as a starting point for writing or rewriting this work, as what she calls a programmatic method, and she remarks that she finds it useful to track how the psychological experience and the emotional experience of gathering material is putting pressure 
in a certain way on what is a very avant-garde, constraint-driven composing technique without actually entering the poems as content. For Robertson, this process shapes the poem. Now I'll play a clip of my interview with Robertson, where you'll hear her describe her process in her own words. I proposed to Alana that when uh, when we reprint it, that it would be interesting to include um, a new section. Because um, 20, 20 years have passed since I started it. And I started it when SFU first asked me for my archive. So it, it came out of that kind of um, question of how to move things out of the private realm into uh, the public realm. And um, so that's when I decided to reread all my notebooks then. And I decided to send my notebooks to the archive. And so the poems that are in ours boat were constructed out of the notebooks that were all in the archive. And then the ones that I wrote since then as I continued to write it. So like up to 2005 or something like that. But like, you know, I've got stacks and stacks of notebooks since then. And it's, um, it's, I go through them in a somewhat haphazard way from time to time if I'm looking for something. And when I do that, I, I stick labels on the cover that have lists of some of the material that I notice is in that notebook. But um, this is the first time I've gone through them systematically since, I, since the early 2000s when I composed that book. And um, it's just, it's, it's very interesting to do. First of all, just to um, rediscover research you've done, which yeah. some, some of which might, you know, still be useful and to be able to locate where it is and what, what, you know, what texts you were reading and stuff like that. Also, you know, you can find just poems fall out of it. That's great. A few little windfalls like that. And then there's the, the, I mean, I do it as a sort of programmatic um, method for making a text. You know, I, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not doing it because I'm trying to, you know, get in touch with my you know, 40 year old self or something like this. But inevitably, of course, all kinds of stuff arises because you remember things. And so I found this first time around when I was composing Ours Boat too, that the, although the texts are composed programmatically and using constraint methods, the psychological experience of gathering the material and choosing ways to compose the material is, you know, it's, it's quite emotionally intense. Noting her upcoming birthday, Robertson observes how the process of reworking the material from her archives has a distinct relationship to reaching a certain point in her life. She explains, 
language is emotional. Subjectivity is linguistic. For me, you don't need to directly refer to emotional content in order for it to be present. At first, I interpret these words at face value, thinking about the corpus of Robertson's writing, but then I step back and apply it to the broader context of her archive. I think about the interconnections between her archival collections and her shifting relationship with these objects and records, and how these, the relationships, the objects, the records, are imbued with emotions, hers and those of many others. I reflect on how these emotional resonances, whether foregrounded in conversation or completely silent in the background, are what have always drawn me to want to spend time wading into the archives as a site of lived history. To close this episode, I would like to consider how Julietta Singh opens No Archive Will Restore You with a passage that captures the tenor of my last conversation with Robertson and my ongoing relationship to her archives, especially now during the distressing and ongoing quietude of the pandemic. Singh describes the beginning of her graduate studies and her entry into the ambiguous, precarious, but intimidating environment of archival studies. She writes, We were scrambling toward the archive. We knew it was crucial, but I suspect that few of us know what it meant, or where it was, or what to do with it. But in contrast with the picture of the grasping, desperate graduate student Singh presents in this chapter to give context to her eventual revelations that archives are much more than the cold institutional entities she first encounters, I see the instability of this kind of mystery or unknowing as an invitation for engagement that tests the boundaries between academic and emotional selves. In the context of my conversations with Lisa Robertson, I can now better understand how relationships to the archive and the collections that constitute archives themselves can shift and evolve over time and across space. An archive that is in a constant state of transformation is a proposition for new kinds of thinking about relations between methods and modes of representation and lived, embodied experience. Spoken Web is a monthly podcast produced by the Spoken Web team as part of distributing the audio collected from and created using Canadian literary archival recordings found at universities across Canada. Our producer this month is Spoken Web contributor Julia Pollock O'Neill. Our podcast project manager and supervising producer is Judith Burr. Our episodes are transcribed by Kelly Cubbon. To find out more about Spoken Web, visit SpokenWeb.ca and subscribe to the Spoken Web podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen. And don't forget to rate us and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or say hi on our social media at Spoken Web Canada. Stay tuned to your podcast feed later this month for Shortcuts with Catherine McLeod, mini stories about how literature sounds. <laughs>